Today we are going to be back in the book of Acts. We will be at Acts chapter 10 today. Uh, if you want, uh, you can follow along. We'll have the slides up here. There's a Bible provided for you in the seat if you need it uh, below you. Uh, we are in uh, the second part of the book of Acts. We did the first part years ago and, and uh, when it was the, the birth of the early church. Uh, and this section, which is ver uh, chapters 8 through 12, we're focusing on the persecution of the early church. And, and really my hope for this series is that we will be encouraged by how God displays his power uh, amongst all the persecution. And we'll also be challenged uh, and we'd be challenged by the perseverance of the early church, and we need to be encouraged. We need to be challenged because if you sit here today with your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have the same purpose as the early church, and that is to go preach the good news of Jesus Christ. So may we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear what God would see, speak to each of us today. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Now, today we're going to talk about many things. Uh, we're going to talk about God's special revelations. Uh, we're going to talk about the, uh, the hunters. Anybody, any hunters in here? Any, none today? Well, we're going to cover the hunter's favorite Bible verse today. Uh, and most importantly, we're going to talk about how God calls us to view others, uh, how we view each other. And, and this is crucial. Uh, it is a crucial thing to understand and to reflect on. Uh, so that we may take a step in fulfilling God's call and purpose in our lives. So let me start by reading the first several chapters here of Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. Now about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial to God, before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. Verse 6. And he is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So we have this man named Cornelius, who was a Gentile, which means he was not a Jewish person. And we'll talk about that more later. And he was a Roman centurion, which means he had command over about a, company's, a company of about 100 soldiers. He's an important guy. Now, most importantly, it says he was a man who feared God. He was someone who prayed, he gave to those who in need, and it says that he walked in an upright way later in chapter 10. So this angel comes to him in a vision, and he says, you're living in such a way that your life is a memorial to God. I had to pause on that when I was reading that this week because I had forgotten about this verse. And I said, brothers and Christians, I was just thinking to myself, wouldn't, it, wouldn't you love to have this said of you? That your life, is a memorial to God. It is a memorial to God. I'd love to have that set of my life. Lord, I pray, I pray you'd make it so in our lives. Amen. Now, after complimenting his life, the angel tells him to send for Peter, the apostle, and, and to hear what he has to say. 
And then as we get to verse 9, the story shifts to Peter. Verse 9. Now the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. The hunter's favorite verse. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. This happened three times. And then the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, if you don't understand the history of this section of this passage, you can like, this can seem like really weird. Uh, so I'm going to take a moment to explain the background here. The Jewish people had certain dietary restrictions on them. Uh, in the Old Testament of the Bible, the Bible is broken up into two sections, the Old and the New. And the Old Testament is focused primarily on God's relationship with the nation of Israel. And in the Old Testament, God gave them some rules of what they could eat and what they could not eat. And you can read about this more in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But the dietary laws included um, uh, not eating pork, which means no bacon. No wonder they were always so crabby with God. Uh, no shrimp. Uh, many types of seafood were not allowed. Insects were not allowed, which I have no problem with that one. Uh, certain kinds of birds and various other animals. Now, there were several reasons that God had them on this special diet. But the one that's really pertinent for today is that it would keep the Israelites set apart from all other nations. You see, the nation of Israel, they were God's people, God's chosen people. And they had, now they had a purpose for this. Their purpose was to live differently than the rest of the world. The rest of the world followed many gods. You read about that all throughout the Old Testament. Their purpose was to show the rest of the world the one true God. To bring the blessing of God to the world. To be a light in the darkness. And if you read the Old Testament, you know there was plenty of darkness. But to do this, they had to avoid communion with darkness. Right? And we read about this in the Bible today. Who you surround yourself will affect you for good or for worse. It was the same then. And you, we can read about this in the Old Testament. You read about them uh, uh, marrying other people who did not believe in God and, and the destruction that it brought to Israel. Them starting to follow other gods. You see it all throughout why God would do this. And he chose food. One of the reasons is back then, even more so than today, people gathered together for food. And so if there are certain dietary restrictions, it would keep the Israelites from giving into temptation, into communing in inappropriate ways with those who did not follow God. Makes me think of the verse in the New Testament where, where God says, you know, to be in the world, but not of the world. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. It was a, a matter of, of survival. Uh, uh, for the Israel identity, which we know Christ would eventually come through. 
And so when you understand this and, and you read the, a lot more of the history and the context that I even have time to give today, you can get why Peter's like reaction was so stark to God. Uh, in, in, in chapter 14, in verse 14, he's, Peter says, um, by no means, Lord. He says, no, he's like, no, nah, no way. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Like he is shocked by what God would say to him to the point that he's telling God, no. Now, I have never seen God in a vision like this or heard God's voice from this way, but I would have to imagine, you gotta, I would imagine what it would take for me to actually like ref, tell God no. Because you would have to think, when you read the Bible of God appearing and talking to people, they're often filled with terror and fright. And yet God, and Peter's so bold to be like, no way, God. It's like, I've lived this way my entire life. How is this possible? The entire life. He has been zealously keeping these dietary restrictions, believing in this, in this kosher uh, commitment that was required by God. And yet God's telling him, eh, never mind. He resisted so strongly to God's voice that God repeated it a second time and a third time, which was actually kind of gracious by God. God said, look, what I consider clean, do not consider unclean. Now, for as much as Peter struggled with it, you know, I, I have to give him credit. I have to give him credit because he didn't walk away from God uh, he didn't ignore it as you continue to read the story, which we will. Right? He was thinking through it. He was working through it. As one commentator wrote that God found in Peter a person who was open to living with uncomfortable things of God. And because of this, as we go on to see, it opened up Peter to be a part of God's amazing work. And I bring this up because I think far too many people, we're, we're not willing to live with the uncomfortable. God comes to us through his word. He tells us things that we don't like to read, that challenges the way that we live, that challenges our pride, challenges the things that we hold to. And so what are we tempted to do? Walk away from it, ignore it. But as any Christian who really seeks to be obedient to God, understands God is not here to make your life comfortable. If anything, he makes your life completely and utterly uncomfortable. He does not stick around to tell you things that are easy. He tells you things that are very hard for your ears to hear. He does not allow you to stay in the status quo. He's going to tell you things that you don't like, and you are going to have to decide whether you're going to trust yourself and what you want, or you're going to trust and be obedient to him. Being a Christian says, I am going to trust him and be obedient to his word, no matter what the cost, no matter how uncomfortable it is, no matter how ugly it is, no matter how tiring it is. And my prayer is this morning with myself included, that there's any area in your life where you're not being obedient to his word, that God would make it so clear right now. That as I preach this message, it would come up in your mind and your heart that you may repent 
and began to trust in him through obedience. Can I get an amen? Now, I do want to be clear. When I'm talking about revelations, because this is a revelation for Peter. I'm not talking about like a brand new revelation that's coming out of nowhere. Um, I say this because there's those out there, if you ever studied Christian mysticism, as they call it, though I don't believe there's any such thing, that they'll point to this verse as evidence of God bringing us new revelations. And this has been a problem since the first century church. And it's been a huge threat to the gospel. But this was not a new revelation for Peter. This was God helping to understand, because Peter was a little hard-headed, if you know Peter, to understand what he had already been taught. For Peter heard the words of Jesus, who made a point to teach him and the Pharisees that it's not that what goes into a man's mouth that makes him unclean, but what comes out of a man's mouth that makes him unclean. Now, I still believe that God can come in visions, and revelations, special revelations as we would call them. But I'd also say, do not make that the foundation of your theology. Because that could be tempted when you read a lot of chapters 8 through 12. And there's, because there's all of these special revelations. But we have to remember, visions were not the commonplace in the New Testament. We see the high, highlight reel of the New Testament. And sometimes that's where we take our eyes. But they, ha- they happened at very specific times for very specific reasons. And these people were never se- seeking them out. They came when they were not expecting them. I say this because I want to make sure that the word of God, the pages of this book, are all that we seek. If you desire to have God speak to you, here you go. Now, don't get me wrong, God can still come to you, but don't rely on it. I would say don't even seek it, because if you're seeking what is the exception, if you're seeking what is uncommon, you're going to be left empty in your relationship with God, because God chooses who and when to give special revelation, and he may not choose to give you one. And if he does, it may be a very long time in between. So go to what? You can rely that he has given you that is always there, the word of God. There's no substitute for it. In fact, I, I wonder if God would have had to bring this revelation to God, if Peter, uh, to Peter, if Peter would have just remembered and held fast to the words of Jesus. And I think another reason I, I, I point you back to the word of God and not to get wrapped up in revelation, though it's cool if it happened, is that I, I don't believe it's God's desire for us to always know what to do and what is going to happen. Because in our nature, we come to God when we need things. And when we get what we need, then we are tempted to fall away from God because we've got what we wanted. It's not part of our selfish, sinful nature. And so when God keeps things hidden from us, it keeps us coming back to him for strength and for guidance and for wisdom. It develops his relationship with us, which is what his, his desire. In fact, this, over this new year, I'm trying to find a way, I'm praying through different options of ways for us to read parts of the Bible together next year, that we may increase God's visions in our lives through his word. All right. 
So Peter gets this critical reminder. And it was critical because the way that Peter viewed food had a bearing on how he viewed his ability to spread the gospel. Often, people who get into God's word, we can take passages of the Bible and we can tend to take them too far or to misunderstand what God is saying. And the Jews were no exception. They were masters at it. See, in the Old Testament, God says, look, I don't want you eating with the non-Jewish, with the Gentile people, because I don't want you falling into sin with them. Now, that didn't mean that they were better or worse, but he wanted them to fulfill their purpose. Problem is, many of the Jews got caught up in seeing the Gentiles as less than. Like, they wouldn't invite, they would never go to a Gentile's house. In fact, dirt from a Gentile country was considered defiled. So like a Jew would literally, after leaving a Gentile land, shake the dust off their feet. They were considered dogs. By the way, unless some of you, someone in here is Jewish and I don't know, we were, we're all Gentiles. They were considered dogs. They would not eat any food prepared by Gentile hands, even ones that were allowed. Cooking utensils, if you bought them, if you got them off GentileAmazon.com, they had to be purified and cleaned before you could use them. These were all things that, God never said any of this. This is all stuff that were added by the Jewish people. So like they ended up perverting God's original intention for his commands. They were meant for protection, not to invoke some a sense of pride in the Jewish people. And so this message is like twofold. One idea to Peter, like, look, all food, as Jesus said, is good for consumption, which is great because it means bacon's back on the table, right? Hallelujah. Within reason, of course, as I'm learning. Feel me? But it also, its second reason, had a greater implication in Peter understanding that there was to be no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And Peter recognized this. Verse 17, it says, Now while Peter was inly, inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. Verse 23, so he invited them to be his guests. And the next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was, expected, was expecting them. And he called together with his relatives and close friends. Now when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I am too just a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many 
persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I sent for, was sent for you, I came without objection. I ask then why you have sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called people, Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and now you have been kind enough to come. And now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all what you have been commanded by the Lord. Main verse here. Main verse here. I already lost it. Here we go. In verse 28, that God has shown me that I should not call any person uncommon or unclean. This is a truth that still stands today. Though we are all Gentile, so the Jewish Gentile thing doesn't really matter unless you're Jewish and I don't know it. The truth still stands for us, but in different ways. The gospel is for all people. We all need this reminder that none of us in here have the right to call somebody else unclean. That every man and woman is on the same footing before God. I say that because we're all tempted in our fallen nature to get caught up in favoritism and in prejudice. Now, prejudice is an ugly word. It's an ugly word for good reason. Prejudice is the, the strong tendency for us to over-categorize a group of people, lumps people together based on some common characteristic. And you see it in the churches, among Christians, the one place you should not see it. Now, you should see it in the world because in the world, they don't look to God for their worth. They look to each other. And, and if you don't have God to give you your worth, what you're forced to do is compare yourself to others and either you're better or worse than other people. And that's how you determine your worth. It is only a Christian who looks to God for their worth. So it shouldn't be there. And yet it is. There's a history of, of, of prejudice when it comes to race in churches. Even today, there's some churches. My wife is from the South. If I, as a white man, were to walk into some black churches in the deep, deep South, still today in 2023, I would not be welcomed, and vice versa. There are some who can call themselves Christians, who have a prejudice against someone who is called Palestinian. Even though they probably never met one. And I'm not getting into politics today, so... Leave that aside. I'm talking about how we view other people. I've heard Christians talk with disdain about migrants. Once again, not getting into politics and rules of government and borders and all of that. We've talked on that before. But how do we view someone else that comes across the street as a migrant? We have a prejudice, many rather than saying, God, what are you calling me to do? You go on the flip side, back to the Palestinian, you have some who would say the same about an Israeli, lumping them together. Look at the homeless situation in our country in some, in some states, like my home state of Seattle. 
where there seem to be everywhere. And it can be easy, once again, to allow our politics to give us a prejudiced view of those people. We can even do this with people's backgrounds. I knew of a couple, um, uh, read of a couple once by another author who talked about a couple in his church. One was a doctor. Uh, uh, and the other was, uh, I think, a professor. And they had a Christian son who wanted to marry a, a wonderful Christian woman. The only problem is this Christian woman his mother was a prostitute and active drug addict. How would they respond in that moment? Would they shut it down because of who her family is? Or because of the work of Christ and he, that he has broken all barriers, would they welcome this daughter into their home? Though there was probably some good conversations to be had of the implement, you know, of, to their son, of the implications of a decision and the trouble and struggles that it would bring. How about as a church, if someone were to walk through that door who considered themselves transgender, would they be welcome to take a seat here? Furthermore, not only would they welcome to be take a seat here, but would you be willing to go greet them, to talk in them, to look into their lives, or would you see that because of everything going on in our country and the politics and the media and all of that, and would you avoid them? Would the prejudice be the first thing that takes hold in your heart? How about if you had two people that walked in here who lived in a homosexual lifestyle? Would, would they be welcome to sit in our seats? And by welcome, like we engage them and love them and talk with them. Or think of any other the billion type of possibilities of people who would walk in our church. Now, and I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I don't agree with the statement that God accepts you as you are. It's not true. God accepts you despite who you are. <laughs> but he demands repentance and change in your life. So that when I say that we welcome people, and I, and I go through all of these lists of people, it, I'm not talking about that we accept every decision that they make. Because I believe love is also preaching God's truth to them. But it means do we see them with the same underlying definition of their lives as we see ourselves? Or do we see ourselves in a better standing, a better footing than them? Because Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. And to ever see ourselves in a better place, to feel any ounce of pride is an immature understanding of God's work in theology, understanding of his theology. When we realize that we're accepted by God and into his kingdom as a member of his family, not because of any merit of our own, but because of his grace and his mercy, then we are forced, we, we don't have the ability to ever look down on anyone else. Ever. Because we know that we are all just beggars who received bread. Our sin just looks different. Prejudice at the end of the day, it's an expression of insecurity. For those of us who do not feel secure, in what Christ 
has done for us, that all of our worth, all of our confidence, all of our value is in him and him alone. When we, when we don't have that view, when we're not steep in that, a mature understanding of that, we will look to other things to make us feel important. Once again, the trap of comparing ourselves to others. Romans tells us that God shows no partiality, none. Paul in Galatians, he made the point that in Christianity, there's neither Jew or Greek. There's neither a slave nor free. There is no male. There's no female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all on the same footing when it comes to God. And for some of you, this is important for you to hear because you're still seeking God. And you, in a way, though you probably have never used this word, you feel like God has a prejudice against you. You see other people who look so much holier, they look like, and trust me, they only look like it, they have more of it together than you do. And you're tempted to think that God has less value on you than, uh, than he does others. And that others, he has more value. He's more excited for others to come to him than he is for you. He could take or leave you. But this is simply not the case. His love and his grace and his mercy are available to every man and woman who would turn to him. I don't care who you are, what you have done, what your background is. He loves you. He has died for you. And he calls you to turn to him. Period. Back to my Christian brothers and sisters. The Bible states that love must govern every action that we take. Our prejudice against people, our assumptions, it's opposed to love. Love sees the image of God in every man and woman. Sees the image of God in every man and woman. And sees, as we talked about for the first Sunday in Advent, the hope of what every man and woman could become if they turned to him. We must reject and repent of, of every desire in us to judge a person's worthiness based on all our human factors. People, in the end, people are in two states. They are either a sin a sinner in need of salvation, or they are a sinner who has received salvation. That's it. We should be the most prejudice-free people that there is. Once again, that does not mean we do not speak truth. But like Christ, we speak that truth as those around us experience our love our willingness to go to them. We need to hear this and think about this. And if, you, and if you don't stop today and say, Lord, where do I have prejudice in my heart? What kind of people do I struggle with? We will not, if we have it in us, which we all do to some degree, we will not be able to do and achieve what Peter did. And that is to take the word, the gospel to those who need it. Look later, verses 10, 34 through 35. 
when he was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, it says, Peter opened up his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You see, and that's what a sign is when the prejudice is ripped out of our hearts. When we see somebody else and we do not see them for whatever stereotype or whatever history that we have with them or people like them, we see them as someone who needs Christ. And for our young people, that can even be in your schools. Because when I was in school and I was a Christian, there was, and I was still figuring it out and trying to be a Christian, there were still groups of kids that I didn't want to be seen with because they were the undesirables. And I apologize to any of you that were those undesirables when you were in school. I was in middle school too, right? I wouldn't want to hang out with them because I would no longer be deemed cool. And I think it prevented me from reaching some people who desperately needed hope. But this carries on even past school into our lives. We must be willing to go to those, to anyone God calls us to. And it is only when we rip out the prejudice of our hearts that we're able to see people in need of the gospel, willing to approach people that we may not normally be comfortable with for any variety of reasons. And when we do that, we can preach the gospel. We can see people come to faith like like Peter did. We can see the Holy Spirit move on them like, like Peter did. We can see them get baptized like Peter did. And then one day we can stand with them in glory. So my prayer this morning, and if you don't do this work, the message will be lost, is to ask God to show you where you don't see others as he does. To ask him to give you a heart for others and to give you the courage to step out with the gospel and with love when he calls you 